Hello and welcome to episode number 184 of Turkey Book Talk, our first of 2023. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul and in this episode opening the year we speak to Gregory Golwin of Aurora University, the author of Borders of Belief, Religious Nationalism and the Formation of Identity in Ireland and Turkey, published by Rutgers University Press. The book examines the conflicted processes of how religious identity, Catholicism in the Irish case, Islam in the Turkish case, came to be fundamental building blocks for the two countries' nation-building projects throughout the 20th century and up to today. Of course, forms of Catholic Irish nationalism and Muslim Turkish nationalism both weaved themselves into cohesive movements and indeed achieved the goal of nationalist self-government at around the same time. The Irish Civil War being in 1922-1923 and Turkey's War of Independence also ending in 1923. As Goldwyn shows, those processes were far from inevitable and there were many other potential paths that weren't taken. Before we crack on with the episode, remember you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. If you're a current member, do double check the email that I sent out with this episode, which has the updated discount codes for 2023. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached, you'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Gregory Goldwyn. Turkey and Ireland may seem on the surface rather distinct cases, one emerging from out of the ashes of an imperial power, the Ottoman Empire, and the other emerging from under the yoke of an imperial power, the British Empire. So I started by asking what prompted him to start out on this study, comparing these cases of Turkey and Ireland. Absolutely. And and it's true. That's the first question I always get. It seems a little bit out of left field. Uh, and I understand that in, in a lot of ways. Uh, I came to the study of these cases, uh, sort of, I sort of like backed into it, really. I was a graduate student in history before I switched to sociology and was taking like the last class that I needed before I switched was a course in Greek history. And I got really interested in Greek nationalism and the relationship between Greek nationalism, the Ottoman Empire. And then from that, my interest in Turkish nationalism grew as I started to, to look at the ways that ethnic, political, religious groups were intersecting in the late Ottoman Empire. And so as I started to kind of develop this 
project, I really started to dig into the issue of Turkish nationalism, where it comes from, how we think about these sorts of aspects and the impetus for it. And I knew that I wanted to do a comparative study, that especially in the study of nationalism, it's relatively common for there to be really in-depth historical case studies that do a really good job of looking at what happens in a particular country. There are some comparative studies as well that that can do a really good job at drawing connections across that. But um, many of them have tended to focus only on Europe, especially Western Europe, Christian countries in Europe, or uh, to a lesser extent, sort of Europe and North America, but again, much of a focus on Christianity. So I wanted to build in a comparative case that sort of spoke to the conversations that had been having, that had been happening in that, but also to expand and do a comparative study beyond the boundaries of Europe, look at not just Christianity in its various forms. I also was really interested in, you know, when we study nationalism, often people draw a sort of strict divide, and and this has been questioned more recently, but a divide between sort of civic nationalism that's seen as more inclusive. Some of the research has kind of ethnocentrically contrasted that with so-called Eastern or ethnic-based nationalisms. And that dichotomy, I think now is, is recognized that it's not nearly as powerful as what it was once thought. But I was really interested in in questioning that and also flipping that around a little bit. There's also, uh, as you alluded to, some really striking similarities in the two cases. They're going through nationalist movements at pretty much the same time, give or take a little bit. Both of them are dealing with very complicated legacies of empire, Turkey arising out of the Ottoman Empire, Ireland, this sort of colonized or or victim of imperialism by the British, but also playing a role in the British Empire's sort of expansion around the world. So there's a lot going on there. And there's a lot in the terms of the types of efforts that nationalist movements, nationalist leaders they, they follow relatively similar paths in trying to figure out what the nation should be, how we should define whatever this national community is, is going to be. And so I think it's certainly as I was working through it, each case made me think about the other case differently in a way that I think was, was really productive, at least for me. Now, you talk about how in both cases, quote, religion served as a powerful means of identity formation, a way of differentiating members of the nation from those outside it. Religious identification became a symbolic boundary, creating distinct in-groups and out-groups that helped define national belonging and crystallize collective identity. Irish Catholicism and Turkish Islam provided a central core of cultural symbols, memories and attitudes around which national identity could form. Part and parcel of this nationalizing process was the formation of group boundaries, forms of social differentiation that would determine who would and who would not be considered members of the new nation. Both Islam and Catholicism provided a comfortable and exclusive characteristic that could make simple what were complicated questions of belonging and membership. And in both cases, the nation was always conceived in opposition to the cultural and political threat posed by distinct others. So there's a lot going on there. And if we just take the two cases, thinking about those others, in the Irish case, there was this opposition to Protestants in the North amid the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921 that created Northern Ireland. And it was that energy in opposition to that treaty that largely you know, propelled uh, a form of Catholic Irish nationalism, or at least brought that even more to the fore. And in the Turkish case, around the same time, of course, as you say, there was this opposition to non-Muslim minorities and also at the same time, the great power 
powers basically seeking to carve up the Ottoman Empire after the First World War. And in the Turkish case, of course, that's always been the great irony because we see here this new republic, which historically has often been characterized as very rigidly secularist and modernist, was actually built on these religious foundations or religious identity foundations. So could you just talk about how that compares with the Republic of Ireland? The irony really of the fact that Turkey was built on these essentially religious identity foundations, but also was very consciously a secularist state. And how that compares to Catholic identity in the Republic of Ireland, which, as I understand it, is far more weaved into the the, the fabric of the state, essentially, uh, in comparison. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I think you really hit hit it on the head. Some of the really interesting dynamics that are happening in both cases, and really that moment of the foundation of the Turkish Republic as nationalists are essentially trying to get a sense of what a new national state should look like is really what what struck my interest in all of this. In particular, in the Turkish case, where you've got competing versions of what a nation could look like. Is it going to be secular, sort of European-facing sort of territorial nationalism where anybody within the boundaries of the state is going to count? Or is it going to be religious? Is it going to be ethnic? Similar processes end up happening in Ireland, even though, as you said, like we we have more of a sense today of, of Catholicism in particular being woven into the foundation of the government itself. And so really, when we're getting at these sorts of questions, what's happening in both cases is a search for boundaries, a search for trying to understand who's going to count and who's going to not. How are we going to redefine who we are? In Turkey, there were many different versions of a Turkish nation that potentially could have come out of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. And I think as you read through different nationalist writings of the time, you you see the you see different people pushing for different versions of what that identity could look like. You see something really similar in Ireland, even before the separation of the Republic of Ireland from Northern Ireland in the, the 1920s, there's a quest for much of Irish history as people start to develop a, a separate conception of what an Irish nation could be. There's a very similar search for what should it be. So if we go back, you know, several hundred years, some of the first people who, who get first arguments for national identity and for the idea that Ireland should be its own separate thing, right? Its own separate state, state, its own separate nation, apart from Britain, are people who are actually Protestant, who are basically upset that they are not having the type of power back in England that they feel like they should. They're being taxed. They're feeling distinctively different from the the English. And so that's where it, it comes out. And there have been many versions of what an Irish identity could look like, too. You have people pushing for maybe the real Irish are this group of sort of colonizing elites who have come from England, but now are distinct ethnically, culturally from Britain. Or maybe it's we're going to go the territorial route and say we want to carve off, you know, the island of Ireland is like, 
like a nicely bounded territory unit, maybe we can say there's something distinct about the people here. Other times it was focused much more culturally and linguistically. There's a big linguistic nationalism movement that says, you know, whatever you want to think, if people in Ireland are speaking English, they're still going to be part too many cultural connections to England and Britain. And so really true Ireland is the people who speak the Irish language, nobody else. And so maybe we should separate out who the, the Irish speaking people are from everybody. All of these different versions are swirling around, much like in the Turkish case. And nationalist entrepreneurs are making different arguments about what these things should be. And as these arguments are being made, some start to rise to the top. Some are more successful. And so what I was really interested in is why are some versions of national formation more successful in these cases? In this case, why in Turkey, even as the rhetoric is very secular, why is the state being founded on these very deep religious concerns, right? This sense that Turkey is a Muslim country, that people who are Turkish quote unquote, in many other ways, speak Turkish, live in Turkey, but are Christian, why did they not count? Why was there a population exchange between Greece and Turkey in which Greek Orthodox Christians, even ones who had lived in Turkey, you know, for generations and were Turkish in every other way except for their except for their religion, exchanged for Muslims living in Greece, who were in exactly the opposite situation, right? Spoke Greek, lived in Greek for generations. The only difference was they were Muslim. So what's going on there? What's happening with the mismatch? Why does a religious conception win out? And that's really what I was looking for as I started into this research. Now, someone with only a very rudimentary understanding of Irish nationalism, I always equated it pretty uncomplicatedly with Catholicism mm -hmm. and, in fact, always assumed that was the case. So a lot of the details in the book about the more complicated origins of Irish nationalism, you know, the Gaelic cultural revival of the 19th century, which was really not a religious process at all, and in fact was uh, led by many Protestants in Ireland, and the prominent role of Protestants yeah. in forming the early stages of Irish nationalism, they really came as a revelation to me. And it did also remind me that, you know, the origins of Turkish nationalism or a form of Ottomanism towards the later stages of the Ottoman Empire were also a bit more complicated than the more simple Sunni Muslim identity-based ideas of Turkish nationalism in the Turkish case. You talk about how there was this gradual crystallization of national identity in Ireland, a homogenization in which the panoply of different nations, movements and types of nationalism that have been present at various times in Ireland's long history gradually was subsumed under the umbrella of religious nationalism and Irish identity became intimately intertwined with Catholic identity. To be Irish is to be Catholic and Catholicism continues to play a powerful role in shaping Irish politics, culture and society. But as we say there, this easy characterization of Irish national identity as equating basically with Catholicism is not really as simple as it might appear. So I just wonder if you could sort of dig into that a little bit more for us, you know, that complicated question, particularly in Ireland, you know, of, of how it wasn't always destined to be the case that national identity throughout the 20th century would so closely be connected to Catholicism. There were other paths and there were more complicated routes ahead that weren't taken. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is fundamentally one of the, one of the, the real core ideas and themes of the book is that if this is one particular option that one out of among many, then why? Right. Why is it that 
we do from the outside have this strong idea of the the relationship between Irish national identity and Catholicism, right? Why do we have a conception of the Turkish nation that fits into the way we are? What happened to those other possibilities? And why did each nation go down the path it did? And so to get at that, I started to think through some of these boundary formation processes, right? Nations in general are, are fundamentally bounded. If you're saying I'm part of a nation or that my nation, my group of people is separate, you're automatically creating a sense of, of difference between you and the other, whatever else is out there. And so my question, my fundamental question is, as you're trying to, to draw these boundaries, why religion, right? Why was it Catholic identity in Ireland that made sense? Why in Turkey was it a, an Islamic identity, even though much of the rhetoric, as you said, is often very secular? And so to, to, to dig into that, I, I, I thought about the types of social circumstances that each of these cases were dealing with under these moments of crystallization. Both of these movements start to really get going or start to gain power at moments when there's a real need for a sense of identity. In Turkey, we've talked a lot about the fall of the Ottoman Empire, the Balkan Wars that created this sort of intense refugee pre pressure in a lot of places, the defeat in World War I that caused a, a chain reaction of, of terrible things that would happen for the Ottoman state. And there was a sense in Turkey that there needed to be a, a new formation that could come out of that. Same thing in Ireland, actually. Actually, one of the things that we find is that conception of Irishness is something distinct and especially something that is Catholic or linguistically focused, all of these different versions, really gets underway in the 19th century or really gains gain strength. And, and much of that comes from some terrible things that happened in Ireland under this time. The Great Famine that is so famous that we've all heard talk about creates a tremendous amount of pressure on people who live in Ireland. And the perception of the famine for most people who are dealing with it is that it is a famine, not just that is a naturally occurring event, which of course is part of it, but that it was caused and strengthened by British economic policies being forced onto Ireland. And so people who are suffering, who are seeing their communities fall apart, seeing their family members die, start to think, you know what, there needs to be something different here. There needs to be a different version of politics that takes care of the people around me, people like me. And so that is really this moment, as you said, this crystallization of identities. And at the same time, there's a really significant change in how religion is working. The famine puts a, a, a lot of pressure in general on Irish society. A lot of people die so the, or, or leave Ireland. So the number of priests and clergy to the population rises significantly. And um, there's, a, there's a sort of intense idea that if Britain is Protestant and if they're putting in these ideas, that maybe that's a distinction between the two different communities that's going to cause a problem. Because it is, you know, in Ireland at this time, most of the people who were poorest were Catholic. And many of the people who were wealthier and survived better than the rest of the country were Protestant landlords. And so that really drove a sort of wedge between the two communities, one that ends up getting brought forward 
throughout the 19th and 20th centuries as nationalist leaders seize on those differences. And so you get people like Patrick Pierce, who comes later, who have this very distinctive version, this version of nationalism that says, okay, here's where the boundary line is. There's the rich Protestants who have everything. There's the poor Catholics who don't. And maybe it's the religious element that if we make this a religious concern, if politics isn't doing it, if economics isn't doing it, those religious differences, I think, might cause a foundational difference. And so we see this in both countries where there's a sort of pressure from outside and also this sense of maybe others within the country that are not like us but could damage us, and a sense that there needs to be a boundary formation that segregates people out. And in both cases, you have this really interesting sense of diversity where both have different religious communities living together, but some communities are prospering or seeming to prosper and some aren't. And so I think that dividing line starts to become more and more salient as people see their neighbors or neighboring communities doing well, and they themselves aren't, and start to draw those connections. One thing that I was reflecting on as I was reading the book is that there was there's an interesting point of comparison, I think, in the later years as well, because you talk about how the number of Protestants in the Republic of Ireland basically dwindled over the years because, as you describe it, you know, Protestants who were not part of partition Northern Ireland often emigrated uh, away from the Republic because they, you know, feared to live in this state that was overwhelmingly Catholic in nature. And the result was that Protestants who made up 12% of the Irish Free State when it came into being have uh, since dropped to around 3% of the population today. And that also, I thought, as I was reading, you know, chimes with a similar process in Turkey, actually, because uh, the declaration of the Turkish Republic in 1923 there was uh, still a few percent of, of the population was Christian. Mm -hmm. And that basically dwindled as well significantly over the years to essentially a, a very negligible number of people now, not even 1%. And there was the same reasons there as well. I suppose you can you can point to, you know, the, the very close association of national identity with a particular religious group in the Turkish case. So I'd never really thought about that comparison before until I read the book. Yeah, I think it's really striking in that it, it shows the, the after effects, the consequences of these sorts of boundary processes, which is once they're created and once more formal borders and things like that are set into place, differentiating different parts of territory, it really does make it clear in, in a lot of ways who is thought to belong and who isn't. As you said, in Ireland, the Boundary Formation Committee that was in charge of drawing the lines of what would be Northern Ireland Ireland and what would eventually become the Republic of Ireland, then the Irish Free State, deliberately tried to craft boundaries that would put as many Protestants as possible in Northern Ireland, but that would sort of give Northern Ireland as much territory as it could while still keeping a, a Protestant majority. So it is this moment of intentional segregation. And once those boundaries are formed, then you have a, a, a Catholic minority in Northern 
Northern Ireland, but one that was pretty significant sized. And you have a much smaller Protestant minority in what is eventually the Republic of Ireland. And the interesting thing about it is that in both the Republic of Ireland and in Turkey, there's sort of these processes function on a couple of different levels. There are official policies that make it harder for religious minorities to live in both places. In Ireland, there's this, this idea, and, and I pull a quote in the book that talks about how, how strongly Catholic the society is, even when the, the political organization of the state isn't always talking about Catholicism, Catholic ideas permeate how the state is formed. It creates very specific rules that live according to, to Catholic ideas, not according to necessarily Protestant ones. And so the, the, the saying by Protestants was that home rule, Ireland ruling itself, was just going to be Rome rule. Home rule is Rome rule. That if Ireland becomes separate, it's automatically going to be ruled by, by the Pope in Rome. So there's the, the legal restrictions on the behavior of religious minorities. And there's also social pressure from the largely Catholic majority who have a, a complicated relationship with the Protestant minority at this point and provide some social pressure against them. Same thing ends up happening in Turkey, where there are official policies. There are immigration policies that privilege Muslims. And then later it's turned, it's changed from Muslims to Turk, but the idea the the criteria still often is is religiously based there are you know different taxes there are pogroms against the christian minorities in places like istanbul istanbul in particular is the one place where the christian community was exempted from the the population exchange and there are a few other smaller communities but much of it is located in istanbul and you see both these sort of government input policies to try to control the the place of minorities but then there's also the social pressure the fact that as minorities the larger majority presence of Sunni Islam sort of put pressure on the people who lived there that they they sort of made it much more difficult to live fulfilling lives as as was the case in Ireland so you get it sort of in in both ways you get this top-down government-focused effort to say, okay, the minorities are allowed to be here, but we're going we're gonna to squeeze them out as much as possible. And you get the social pressure from below of people who are, you know, even if the country is formally saying minorities are welcome, are pressuring people out of specific communities and telling them that they're not socially welcome in a way that, as you pointed out, really shrinks the, the minority populations in both states. I suppose one major difference between the two cases is that Turkey emerged from the ashes of an imperial power and inherited many of the institutions of that imperial power and much of that public memory from the old regime. Ireland, in contrast, emerged from under the yoke of an imperial power, Britain, after a national struggle. So just reflect on that difference. You know, how much did that difference between the two cases weigh on the research? That's a really good question because they are distinct in that ways, but there's, there's a similar sort of rhetoric, which is that even though Turkey is emerging, as you said, out of the ashes of an imperial state, the rhetoric about it talks about the overreach of the Western great powers and the ways that Greece is trying to take parts of, of Turkish territory and France and Britain and all of these plans that have been put into place to dismember the Ottoman 
Ottoman Empire and break it into constituent areas. And so there is a rhetoric of almost anti-colonial, post-colonialism that comes out of the Turkish nationalist movement that does end up being kind of similar to to Ireland. So there's a there's a really interesting con- sort of similarities and contrasts at the same time. In Ireland, of course, there's the there's this complicated relationship in that even as England was colonizing Ireland, many Irish people would go out and work for the British Empire, colonizing other places. That there's still a, a racial dimension of, of sort of Europeanness of whiteness, even if even if they were sort of not British, they were closer than some other areas. So so there's a there's a really complicated strands of both colonialism and anti-colonialism in both places. But I do think you know when you hit on the institutions, that plays a real Really big role here in that the Turkish state draws on a lot of the sense of sort of government and who should be in charge. And even as they take over from the, the sultanate, they really are able to use a lot of that, the mechanisms of government. Whereas in Ireland, even though some of the early nationalists were of the upper class, were Protestant, were landowners, were people who were involved in sort of the colonization of Ireland, there's much less in the way of that sort of state already being present, like the nascent sort of state. And so there's a sense of having to construct not just a nation, but a state itself. And in fact, there's a, an Irish civil war that's fought after the partition between groups that feel like the treaty that partitions Ireland is okay, that part of an independent Ireland is better than nothing. And people who say, no, like it's not really an Irish state until all of Ireland is here. So different versions of what the state could look like, what the government could look like that permeate throughout. I want to bring things up to date now from various angles, but particularly it strikes me that um, we see a considerable secularization of society in both cases today. I think both Ireland and Turkey have followed this broad trend of declining religiosity. So as far as I understand it, church attendance is down in Ireland. Uh, the Catholic Church has largely lost its hold on society in many different realms. And actually in Turkey, there's somewhat similar process going on, despite the fact that, you know, we've got this conservative government that's been in power for over two decades. You know, in Turkey, many polls suggest declining belief in traditional Sunni Islam and a kind of broader process of secularization of individuals' beliefs in many ways. So I just wonder if uh, if these similarities or comparisons also struck you as you were doing this research. Certainly. And I think Ireland in particular is interesting because, as you said, there has been a measure of declining religiosity, and yet the numbers are still higher than most of the rest of Europe. So it's it's this sort of interesting like decline, but also continued strength in some ways, even if it's not a formal strength, a, a sort of cultural strength in a, in a lot of ways. And I think the question of secularism and what is happening in the world, not just Ireland and Turkey, but the rest of Europe, the rest of the Middle East, North America is a really fascinating one because we are seeing these trends of secularization in places, including including the United States, which has long been a, a deeply religious country. But at the same time, in these strands of identity still remain really, really powerful. All we have to do is to look at the ways that nationalist movements still mobilize some of these ideas. So here in the United States, we see a, a conservative Christian movement that talks 
talks about, you know, about wanting to sort of bring America back to, to God. In Ireland, we've seen even as a lot of this, a lot of religion has, has declined, as he said, we've seen it sort of come and, and these nationalist arguments come back to the fore under certain circumstances. So, so some people have argued when it comes to religious nationalism that, that religion can decline later on in the life of a state because religious nationalism has essentially done its job, right? That religious nationalism creates that distinction once the threat abates and the, the nation is established. Religion might still be there, but maybe doesn't play as big of a political role. But if we look at what happened in Ireland during the discussions about Brexit, for instance, in Northern Ireland, there were a lot of discussions of the sort of rise of a nationalist movement that had been relatively dormant since 1998, with some exceptions, and a lot of discussion of, well, like, maybe we need to do this again. And and there, it was often framed in terms of differences in trade policies and, and wanting to stay with the European Union, but they're very similar, similar strands of, we want to be able to have policies of self-determination, that there's something that makes us distinct. In Turkey, too, as you said, there's the there's this interesting moment where, yeah, religion in a lot of ways has become less prominent. And yet at the same time, you do have a very conservative government that's been in power for a while that that prides itself on a more religious dimension of, uh, of Turkish society. So it's a sort of a, a mixed bag, you know, sociologists and scholars in general have long felt that religion was going to eventually wane. We do see some some of that happening in a lot of places. And yet religion still plays a really powerful political role at the same time in a lot of places around the world. Yeah, indeed, perhaps religion more as a sense of identity marker rather than a sense of sense of beliefs that you kind of sign up to, just a sign of, of, of national identity, essentially. And as you say there, you know, religion, of course, in this sense, does remain powerful in both Ireland and Turkey. I just wonder to conclude, really, you know, this question, as you mentioned there with the Brexit vote, this question of Catholic national identity has kind of come back into play in Ireland because we've got this mounting debate on potential reunification of Ireland, which would potentially mean the incorporation of, of a very significant population of Protestants into the national fabric in Ireland. You know, that debate has kind of come out of nowhere since 2016. Where it's going to go, it's uh, obviously hard to say at the moment. But once again, we have this sense of national identity in flux there. So to conclude, I wonder if you could just talk about that, you know, how these issues can kind of reemerge in surprising ways. I think it's really fascinating the way they come and go and the way many of these identities and many of these movements form a sort of underlying core of concepts of the nation, even when they're not always being being talked about as frequently or as commonly. There's just a, a sense, like we know what the, the nation means, right? That we have a, a deep sense of identity. And when threats to that identity come out, we start to see people taking up the, these exact same arguments again. In Ireland, as Brexit happens, this back and forth about what to do with North Northern Ireland got very, very complicated because it's 
all about where the borders are going to be and how we think about the borders of trade policies and taxation and things like that and migration of who gets to come where. There's a, a sense that a closed border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland would be pretty devastating, but also that one between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK would be really problematic. So where do we draw the lines? How do we get a sense of, of again, who's going to count and who's going to not? And much of this comes out in this, you know, these sort of tried and true, way, true ways of thinking about the world. You get nationalists in, in Northern Ireland, especially Catholics, although not, not exclusively, who say, look, if Northern Ireland is leaving the EU with the rest of the United Kingdom, that even more firmly cements us as part of the UK. And that makes us even more uncomfortable because we had this sort of very tentative, shaky agreement. And now there's a much sharper divide a, a closed border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. At the same time, when there was this talk of reunification instead, Protestants get very, very concerned because even despite the secularization of society, even though Catholicism does not play as strong a role in determining government policies as it used to, there's still a sense that Protestants in Northern Ireland would go from a slight majority to an extreme minority in a reunited Ireland. And so there's this concern of like, do we, do we fit in? How will we be treated? Will this actually make sense for us? in that way. So all these old debates are coming out. And even when the issue is about sort of the UK and the Republic of Ireland versus the EU and things like that, they get framed in these deep-seated cultural and religious identities. And we see something similar in Turkey, where Turkey's relationship with the European Union has sort of come and gone, um, petitioning to, to join the European Union, and then taking a step back in that process. But at the same time, you get these religious senses of, you know, maybe we're not European. Maybe there is a difference between us and the quote-unquote West, and that if the European Union has problems with Turkey joining, well, Turkey doesn't need them because we're, we're distinct were different. And, you know, even in Turkey, we've seen, we've seen those reconceptions with the idea of what, what role religion should play in a society fluctuates. And these ideas come out when they're needed. They come out when they are, when these sorts of threats come back, when there's questions of what the community will look like moving forward. That was Gregory Goldwyn. Many thanks for him for joining for the first episode of this year, episode number 184. Don't forget, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, 3 euros, or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram accounts, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey 
Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel now for signed up members who want more, and they've also started publishing high quality, original, on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.